Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would uh, open our eyes afresh this evening to receive from Jesus. Amen. Well, I asked at the beginning, and I mention this for the sake of those who may have arrived a little later, uh, something about um, the process of how each of us who have a faith and seeking to follow Jesus, how, uh, how the process came about. And what I want to do now, I'm not going to get you to talk to each other, but I am going to ask, it's kind of, this is more like a quiz, I suppose. Uh, I want to find out the time frames that were involved. And I'm going to give you a range of, of times. And I'm just going to ask for, for you to put your hand up, because I kind of want to, I think it be quite interesting for um, preachers at least to know this kind of thing. How many of you would say uh, that coming to faith took less than a day? Okay, thank you. How many of you would say that it took more than a day but less than a week? Okay, thank you. How many of you would say it took more than a week but less than a month? Thank you. That was a scratch of the ear, wasn't it? That wasn't a hand going, okay, I just wanted to know, okay. Uh, how many of you would say it was more than a month but less than a year? Oh, gosh, that's, oh, that's, that's, over, there we are, that's lots. Technically, technical language. And how many of you would say it was more than a year? That's the most of all. Thank you. That makes you typical. It's not, not a bad thing to be typical. It's just to let, let you know. Um, that, so that's lots and lots. Okay. Um, that is actually the, the, the typical shape of most congregations. Uh, most people actually reckon, uh, well, on that, the average that people quote is four years uh, to come to faith. Um, uh, so I just passed that on. But it does make us typical. It means it takes the time. And uh, it's therefore relevant that in this story, uh, Jesus does not do everything instantly. He takes time. Uh, please turn in your Bibles, before we go to the main story that we just heard, please turn to chapter 20 and verse 31. And it will tell you what John's Gospel is written for. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing may have life in his name. John is telling you why he's writing John's Gospel. So this, if you're dealing with John's Gospel, this talk this evening, it is not going to help you uh, manage uh, your ailments uh, that may be bothering you. It's not going to help you manage the, directly anyway, the concerns you have for other people. John's Gospel is written to help you to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, to have life in his name, and therefore because you have life in his name to face all those other things that we actually get quite rightly disturbed, perturbed about uh, in our lives. We're going to look at four parties, uh, four they're not quite groups because one of them's only got one group, one person in it. 
on this kind of looking at how faith works out in this particular chapter. How the light of Christ shines in this particular chapter. How how people are engaging with this belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, And the first of these is the man himself. He goes on quite a substantially marked out uh, journey towards faith. First of all, uh, Jesus sends him, uh, because it means sent, to the pool of Siloam. We have no idea why. It is possible, though, that Jesus is putting down a marker with this funny business of making a paste of saliva. um, In lots, it it would be really interesting to find out from the Smiths whether this connects to the kind of um, tribal experience that they will know up in the north of Cameroon. But in, in cultures where dirt is very present, the whole business of managing cleanliness and religious pollution and religious dirt is a really big deal. So Jesus taking, we say just, you know, he, he made mud. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But mud... Um, do you remember all that stuff in, um, in John's Gospel about the dust off, the, off your shoes and the sandals and um, the, uh, Jesus washing the feet because it's the thing a lowest slave would have done? Because the dust from which mud would be made would have all kinds of unmentionable things in it because that's just what was going around. That's what would be on the streets. So if he takes mud, he's taking filth and wiping it on the man's eyes. Now that means he's making a particular kind of claim. He's claiming that he can cleanse with filth, that he has the right to use this kind of disgusting stuff in ways that no one would have dared in his day. It would have been an outrage that you took filth. There were priests allowed to use kind of body substances and what have you, but that's the point in that culture. Only priests get to do it. So for Jesus to do it is to make a claim. He's taking this stuff and he's wiping it on the man's hand and then saying, okay, now go off to the pool of Siloam. Perhaps he wanted just to make it a public event to say, look, uh, on your journey, you'll uh, find that people talk to you, because after all, you've got mud on your eyes, and not many people do. Uh, Maybe there's going to have to be people who guide you, since you are blind, to the pool of Siloam, and that you will wash, and you'll uh, uh, come away seeing. There is no leaping and dancing, as there has been in other stories here. There's simply that lovely line, so the man went and washed, is verse 7, and came home seeing, as you do. But the journey he goes on starts then. He describes uh, what's happened as coming from the man they call Jesus, verse 11. By verse 17, the man says, he is a prophet. Verse 27, over the page, 
whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, uh, but now I see. Why do you want to hear it all over again? Do you want to become his disciples too? His prophet, he's now a teacher who has disciples. Uh, Then in verse uh, 37, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. If this man were not from God, verse 33, he could do nothing. He is from God. And then when Jesus himself looks him up, he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. See that journey? Starts off as a man called Jesus, then he's a prophet, he's a teacher with disciples, he is from God, Lord, I believe. It's not unusual, even in Scripture, that people take a while before the penny drops. So for those of us who sometimes may feel, oh, only the the within-a-day people count, only the, like the St. Paul having a, a Damascus Road experience. Only that counts. And I do meet Christians who've been Christians because they were brought up as Christians and they sometimes feel they missed out. Uh, this didn't take a, a year. It probably took a little more than a day. But he, it's still a journey that he goes through. And there's different realisation along the way. This man demonstrates that it's okay It's perfectly normal to experience the stages of faith. Well, the next group is the neighbours. They surface in verse 8. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, it's not surprising with John, who uses his words very carefully, that he picks up, or he he makes it very deliberate in verse 8, those who had formerly seen him. When he couldn't see, they saw him every day. Now that he can see, they can't see him at all. When he couldn't see, they saw him every day, begging. Now that he can see, they cannot even recognize him. They do not recognize new life when they see it. I, and when I suppose, naturally speaking, you can understand that too, that a man who has been blind, who perhaps had eyes closed or uh, eyes wandering, when they're focused and open and together and there's a kind of rightness about things, of course he's not going to look the same. There are those who do not recognize new life when they see it because for them it was impossible that this man who'd been born blind would be able to see again. They saw something they thought was impossible so they couldn't see it, not properly. And we'll come back to them. But it tells us something about what faith and unfaith look like. Then there's the Pharisees. Uh, They, I suppose, are very jealous. They uh, are certainly very frustrated and yet fascinated. And they, they, they can't get rid of this issue that they want to deal with. 
they say, uh, this man is not from God. This is, that's Jesus. Uh, For he does not keep the Sabbath, verse 16. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? Again, we get this issue coming out from the Pharisees. Not now, as it has been in the past, this is a bad thing you've done. You must not heal on the Sabbath. But now drawing a conclusion that if you are healing on the Sabbath, and and, which is a bad thing, then you must be a sinner. Now, we don't have obsessive, very often, obsessive religious law keepers in our own day. But we do have people who are convinced that they are good. And I wonder if you've ever been in the same situation that I have a number of times. I occasionally meet people about whom, or with whom I want to talk about Jesus. Uh, good people. And uh, they say, oh, I, 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 I don't need Jesus. We carry on the conversation a while. And it becomes clear that they really believe that they really don't need Jesus and they wouldn't bow to Jesus and they believe it would be wrong to bow to Jesus. And I'm always left with this sense of, you think you're good, but if you were good, you would know that you're not perfect. Knowing you're not perfect, you would be quite content to bow the knee to the image of perfection as encountered in Scripture. The very fact that deep in your heart, though you think you are good, there is a rebellion that makes you refuse to bow the knee to the mirror of all perfections as he walked upon the earth, that very fact alone means that you're not as good as you thought you were. Because if you were good, you would realize you're not better than good. We don't have Pharisees, obsessive religious law keepers, walking around. But we do need to be careful when we encounter people who believe that they are good. If they were truly good, then when confronted with Jesus, they would say, I thought I was good, but now, wow, I have encountered Jesus, and I'm going to bow the knee to Jesus, because this is better than anything I've ever met before in my life. Then... I would say, yeah, okay, you've done the right thing. That's a good thing to do. The apparently good often will not submit to Jesus. It's true of the Pharisees, and it's true just as much in your neighbor. And we can ask, really, what is there to be so scared of in this perfect man? Of course, they have a kind of revolting self-righteousness to them. Verse uh, 28, then they hurled hurled insults at the man who was healed, like it's his fault, and said, you are this fellow's Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. That's... They could be English, really, couldn't they? And obsessed with the class system. We don't even really know where you come from. Where did you go to school? What university did you go to? Are you middle class, upper class? You're one of us. 
We don't even know where he comes from. How can possibly? But we know we're, God spoke to Moses, and, and we follow Moses, so we're all right. It is revolting, and we can encounter it, even amongst the apparently good, that really what matters to them is your background. Uh, they do have power, and they throw out the man in verse 34. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? When I was looking at this uh, passage with Andy, um, one, of the, one of the great things about Andy is he has a really big Bible, which means that unlike in the Bibles that you're, you and I are looking at right now, which have got the beginning of the story on one page and the end of the story on the other, his Bible is so big that all the 41 verses of chapter 9 get laid out in front of you. So I saw something for the first time that I'd never seen because I could see the beginning of the story and the end of the story at the same time. The story begins with Jesus' friends, his disciples, saying, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because as the Pharisees make clear in the verse I just quoted, you're steeped in sin at birth. The assumption was not the correct biblical one, that death and hurt and pain and illness have come into the world because of sin. It was the incorrect, unbiblical notion that a particular sin leads to a particular disability or illness. So they say you were steeped in sin at birth. It's obvious in it because you, you, you were born blind. Therefore, there is, there is sin. And the disciples had bought into the same notion. So they say, who sinned exactly that this man was born blind? At the beginning of the story, you get the man who is blind, of whom Jesus said nobody sinned. At the end of the story, the Pharisees are condemned for their blindness. Whose fault is blindness? Jesus says physically there's no fault at all. But spiritually, if you're blind, it's your fault. And I'd never made that connection in quite that way, but I was able to because it's all laid out uh, on one page. Whose fault is blindness? Physically, there is no fault at all going on. Don't jump to conclusions because of circumstances that you encounter in the world. However... What does matter is that you are responsible for your blindness if you are not seeing the light of Christ, the light of the world in Christ. They have power and they throw him out. And then finally, the parents. Uh, They surface... uh, Where are we? Um, I suppose the bottom of page 1075... They sent for the man's parents. Verse 19, is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Well, we know he's our son, parents answer. We know he was born blind. Now we can see now. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. It's a wonderful answer. They actually turn out to be afraid. They're afraid that if they give the wrong answer they'll be thrown out of the synagogue, which means they know, despite what they say they know, they actually know that if they told the truth, they'd be thrown out. They actually know that it was Jesus that did it. They know that Jesus did this, but they do not confess him. 
Well, there is a possibility of a kind of second-hand faith, a faith that has no real light in it at all. They believe that their son can see again, but they will not bear witness because of fear. I'll put all of those together, line them up, and what do we see? Well, firstly, let's talk about everyone except the man. What stops faith? And I'm going to go through these because the likelihood is in any church congregation, some of these are going to be operative for those of us who are not yet believers, and some of them are going to be operative for those of us who are sort of believers. Firstly, simple unbelief, like in the neighbors. They couldn't see it when it was in front of their eyes that this man had changed. They had a mindset that says change does not happen. Well, that might be you. You might believe that it just doesn't happen in the world. Or the Pharisees, more seriously, a a genuine rebellion in their hearts. Change cannot happen unless we say so. We're good enough that we don't need to change. And if any change is going to happen, it's going to happen because we say so. We are simply rebelling against what Jesus represents. Or the parents and fear. Well, change might happen, but we're going to run away from it. We're going to hide from it. It's a pretty serious diagnosis of the human condition. Unbelief, rebellion, and fear. All of these are a blindness in themselves that prevents sight. And any one of them may be you. You may be all three of them. But then let's go back to the man, because who gets faith? A blind man. Always remember when you encounter disability, illness, sickness in Scripture, that it's always wrapped up with the business of being unclean and excluded. The man would have been excluded because someone had sinned. And so we have to remember, who does get faith? Well, absolutely anyone. We are not to assume that it is beyond God to open anyone's eyes. And most of us in practice have got people in our lives, groups in our lives, that we connect to or avoid, where we think, oh, it couldn't happen there. It couldn't happen with that person. God just doesn't do that. He couldn't do that. I'd be a bit afraid if he did that. It's often the most desperate to whom it does happen. But the most dangerous place to be is to think that you are fine without him while claiming to see. And so the story ends. Verse 41, and Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But it's now you claim you can see that your guilt remains. Jesus 
Jesus, while he's in the world, says that he is the light of the world at the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, he says he has come for judgment into the world as the light illuminates the darkness. And the darkness kind of has to decide what to do. And so I want to pray. I want to pray for you and for me, so let's pray together. Uh, It may be that you can recognize in yourself, because the light is shining finally for you, that you have been blind and uh, unbelieving, rebellious, or fearful. Well, the light of the world shines in uh, his word tonight and summons you to see. And does so tonight. Because it just happened to be tonight that you walked into John chapter 9. Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of the blind. We who may be blind ourselves and those we care for who do not know that they are blind. Be pleased, we pray, through us to shine the light of Christ in your world that those may see who are now blind. Dear God, we pray for those who are proud and who think that they are fine without Jesus and claim to see. Have mercy, we pray. And let the judgment that Jesus brings be the judgment of mercy, that many may encounter the light of the world tonight, today, and in the days ahead. Amen.